Please take your Bibles if you have them this evening and turn to John 14. John 14. You know, trust can be a difficult thing to come by in this life, can't it? Just over a year ago now, well, not quite a year ago now, um, well, yeah, it was about a year ago now, I began the process of purchasing a home. Now, my wife had never gone through the process of purchasing a home before. I had never gone through the process of purchasing a home before. The process was entirely new to both of us. Now, I had done my research. I knew the basics of what it took to get out a loan, those sorts of things. I I knew about the credit checks. I knew about the, the process to that degree. But, you know, there were a lot of unknowns when we were going through the process of purchasing that home. And the problem, as I saw it from day to day, when I stepped into this situation, the frustration, I might say, was not so much the new situation. It was not so much what I didn't know. The biggest problem or the biggest frustration I had, the thing that caused me the most anxiety while I was going through this process of purchasing a new home was trusting people. You know, I had a realtor and my realtor assured me that she was always looking out for my best interests. I had a mortgage lender And my mortgage lender assured me that he was always looking out for my best interests. And I could go to another realtor or I could go to another mortgage lender and ask them, why should I switch to you? And the reason they would give me is because I'm going to look out for your best interests. And you know, while I went from person to person finding all these people that were only interested in my best interest, what I found was when I looked at the numbers... And when I looked at the situations and when I compared one mortgage lender with another mortgage lender, I found that not everyone was actually looking out for my best interests. And that was a difficult spot for me to be in. See, because I needed education. I needed to learn some things. I didn't necessarily have a trusted person in the field I could go to. And so I had to go to the people that I could find. And yet I needed someone I could trust. Why is it? that trusting is so difficult. I mean, trust, if you think about it, trust can cause a great deal of problems, and it does cause a great deal of problems in our society. Trust breaks up marriages, does it not? Trust collapses big businesses. Trust cripples relationships between governments. Why is trust so difficult? Trust is difficult because when you trust somebody, you are making yourself vulnerable to them. When you place your trust in what someone else says or what someone else does, you are placing yourself in their hands. And the problem with placing ourselves in the hands of someone else, the reason why people don't like to trust other people or have problems trusting other people is because people are sinners is because people are going to do wrong. It's because people don't always tell the truth. People don't always care about your best interests, and people certainly are not always dependable. And so, 
trust issues arise. And trust becomes difficult. And this difficulty, if we're not careful, transcends human relationships and can taint our relationship with our God as well. Because we have been burned by trusting people, because by trusting people we have been placed in vulnerable situations where we have become hurt or damaged in some way, be it our finances, be it our emotions, whatever the case may be, we translate that into our relationship with our God and we have trouble trusting our God. But if it is true that the problem, if we could call it that with trust, is a problem rooted in the human condition, inconsistency, selfishness, lack of dependability, uh, failure at being truthful, then we should have no problem trusting God. Should we? In a while ago, early or late last year, we were in the book of Malachi in our sermon series. And in Malachi 3.6, God told Israel this, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God was appealing to the reality of him being an unchanging God, a faithful God, a trustworthy God, to prove to Jacob, to prove to Israel that God would do what he said he would do. Now, Titus 1 verse 2 tells us that God cannot lie. God has told us in John 3.16 that he loves us. God told us in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to his purpose. We know from Psalm 139 that God's thoughts unto us are precious and innumerable. And so as we step into John 14 this evening, we're going to look at some promises of God. And these promises will be spoken through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at these promises this evening, as we understand the implications of these promises for our lives, what we need to understand, first of all, the foundation upon which we need these promises to be built is the reality that God is trustworthy. That what God says, He will do. That if God has promised it, it will come to pass that we can trust God. God is not a man He is not scheming. He is not lying. He is not deceiving. He does not have ulterior motives. God is God. We can trust Him. We must remember that as we step into this time this evening. We can trust Him so much that if you have an outline there or if you're taking notes, I have called these expectations of disciples. As Jesus is speaking to His disciples, these are things that you and I if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, can expect. It is already yours. It's already mine. We can expect them in our lives. So let's look this evening at three expectations of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Three expectations of the disciple of Jesus Christ in John 14, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 15 this evening. The first expectation that we have, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, is an expectation of rest. An expectation of rest. 
Recall the context that we are in. Last week we were in John 13, the end of John 13, and that is our context. In chapter 13, recall, um, three weeks ago now, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, and he gave them a commission that they should serve one another as he had served them. He had called those who were his disciples to emulate him. He then gave them a new commandment, that they would love one another as he had loved them. Again, calling his disciples to emulate him. As Jesus closed out that chapter, he told them that he was going away. And he said, where I go, ye cannot now follow. I'm going away and you can't follow me right now. Peter said, I'll follow you even to the death. He tells Peter that Peter would deny him. And doubtless, Jesus having said that he was going to go away, that the disciples could not follow, Peter having determined to say, I will follow you even to the death, and Jesus Christ turning around and saying, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. There was undoubtedly a cloud of sorrow that hung over the heads of these disciples. And it's that cloud of sorrow that we carry into John 14 as we seek to understand what Jesus Christ is saying next. And what he says next, look with me in verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Certainly there was to be a time of momentary sorrow to follow. Not only would Jesus Christ announce his departure, but in a few short hours from that time, Jesus Christ would be crucified. In a few short hours from that time, everything that Jesus Christ said would come to pass. Peter would deny his Savior. The disciples would scatter. Christ would be scourged and crucified on a cross. But you know that these next hours of time would also be glorious as Jesus Christ would bear the sins of the entire world, would call out upon that cross, it is finished, would commend his spirit unto God. This time would drive these men to the very threshold of their emotions. And Jesus Christ needed them to remember that God was still in control. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. His words of comfort began with the expectation that Jesus was going to prepare a home. And that if he was going to prepare a home, he would come back for those for whom he's preparing it. No, I love that word home. My wife and I love that word home. For lack of a better word, my wife and I are homebodies. We love being at home. When we take a trip to Walmart, about halfway through our Walmart trip, we're just ready to go home. We might even look halfway through our list and say, is any of that really necessary? No, okay, we don't even need to go find it. Let's go home. We just want to go home. You know, it's wonderful to go on trips. We just took almost a two-week vacation. We went to Pensacola, Florida. We went to Atlanta, Georgia. We had a wonderful time with family. We had a wonderful time seeing friends again. But we wanted to be 
home. We got home. Uh, you should have seen uh, our girls must follow in our footsteps. We got into the driveway. They were pretty grumpy by the end of our long drive. We got into our driveway. We set them on the driveway and they were just giggling. No reason. They were just giggling. They were stomping. They were happy. They were happy to be home. They recognized this place. This place was comfort. This place was happiness. This place was peace. This place was home. I love being home. In his 1823 opera, John Payne coined these words. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. This phrase has stood the test of time. It's been sung in every generation. It has filled so many with such fondness because it is so true. If you have a good home, and I know that doesn't ring true with everybody, but if you have a good home, it is a place of rest, a place of comfort, a place of protection, a place of peace, and a place of love. And as Jesus Christ comforts his disciples, he tells them, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, typically, when an American thinks of the word mansion, we think of a very large, very grand, very elegant estate or a very elegant home. Well, that's not what Jesus Christ is saying here when he uses this word. Within the context itself, we even see what he's speaking of. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. This word mansions in the original Greek literally has the idea of a room that is adjoining a larger abode. In the Hebrew culture, you would have a large courtyard or a large house, and uh, adjoining that house would be many smaller living areas. And that is what Jesus Christ is speaking of here as he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. We have something to look forward to that's much better than a very large house where things can collect dust and we can find all sorts of nooks and crannies to put things that we're never going to see again because the house is so big. That's not what we have to look forward to. What we have to look forward to is something far better. It's not a house of our own. It's a house, it's a room, excuse me, in our Father's house. Well, who's our father? It's God. We're not going to live next door to God. We're not going to live across the street from God. We are going to be in his house. We are going to have a room adjoining his. We're going to be in intimate, close fellowship. And that's what Jesus Christ is speaking of here. That's what he's relaying is that we are going to have intimate, close fellowship with God. Not only will it be close to God, however, it will be prepared by God. He is going to prepare a place for us. That word prepare in the original languages was used to describe the servants of a king. When a king was on a path, when he was on a long journey, he would send servants hours and days ahead of him. And the entire purpose of these servants was, as they were going before him, to clear the path. If there was rubble in the road, they had to clear it. If there, were, if there was overgrowth that had grown over that path, they had to clear it. If there was uh, anything in the way of this king, they had to prepare the way for the king. So when the king got to that any given point in the road, the road was clear, the road was safe, the road was ready, repairing potholes, whatever it took, 
to get the king along his journey. That is the word that is used here in the Scriptures. It means that in the time between when Jesus Christ ascended to his Father, nearly 2,000 years ago, and the time when Jesus Christ will return to take you and I home, he is busy doing that which is necessary to give us the reception that he has promised to prepare for us a place. You will not enter into an empty room in your father's house. You will enter into a room that has been prepared for you, his dear child. Jesus then connects the dots in verse 3. Look what he says. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. It makes perfect sense. If Jesus Christ is going, and he's going specifically to repair, to prepare a place, it only makes sense that he's coming back to get the ones for whom he's prepared. So that where he is, there you may be also. Now, the disciples were still not quite going to understand Jesus Christ's words here. Jesus presumed that by now, having told them many times that he was going to the Father, they understood that the time of his death drew nigh. We'll see in a few chapters that their understanding was still quite clouded on this issue. He also presumed they understood that as believers in Jesus Christ, these promises were theirs. However, we'll see in a couple of chapters that they don't quite understand that yet. And Jesus has mentioned that, that though he will mention these things, they're not going to understand them quite yet. They will not understand them until it all comes to pass. So he states in verse 4, And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. He says, you know where I'm going, and you know the way. Well, Thomas, he could never quite transition his thought from the physical plane to the spiritual. He was still stuck on the material, on the physical. And so he says in verse 5, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way to get there? Before Jesus answers the question, let's get a little perspective here. Where is Jesus going? He's going to be with his Father in heaven. How will he get there? He will be raised up. He will ascend to his Father. And in answer to Thomas's question, how is it that any other man gets to heaven. He says, we don't know the way. What is the way? Look at verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He says, I am the way. I am the path. I am the trail. I am the direct Access that leads to the Father. I am the truth. Jesus Christ is synonymous with all that is real, with all that is true. If it's true, it's in Christ. If it's in Christ, it is true. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. And he says, I am the life. There is no life outside of Jesus Christ. All who are outside of Jesus Christ are dead. All who are in Jesus Christ are alive, for Jesus is life. And it is only only through Jesus Christ that any man can be placed on the path of truth that leads into eternal life. 
Muhammad's not going to get any person to heaven. The Buddha is not going to get any person to heaven. Ancestors are not going to get any person to heaven. Good works are not going to get any person to heaven. Giving money is not going to get any person to heaven. Church attendance is not going to get any person to heaven. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have an expectation an expectation of rest. Second expectation that we have this evening, in verses 7 through 11, we not only have an expectation of rest, secondly, we have an expectation of knowledge. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of not just following Christ, but knowing the one that we follow. Oftentimes in my prayers, I thank the Lord for this. Not just that we can come and meet together, but I thank God that we can know Him. That we can know His Word. That we have access to that knowledge through His Word. Jesus Christ has revealed Himself to us to a degree that God had never revealed Himself in any other age of history. And He tells us in verse 7 that to the extent that you know Christ you know God the Father as well. Notice what he says. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now Philip is the one that's confused this time. And look what Philip has to say. Thomas was the first one that was confused. Now it's Philip. Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. We'll be content if you will show us The Father. Now, Jesus is very loving in his correction. Look at verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. But more important then seeing the Father is knowing that the words which Jesus spake while upon this earth were in fact the very words of God the Father to men. If Jesus said it, God said it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Word of God. He is God in flesh. And so it makes sense then that no man can come to the Father but through the Son. Because the Son and the Father are one. If it's A part of God the Father, it's a part of God the Son. If it's not a part of God the Father, then it's not a part of God the Son. Now, it's interesting to note here how Jesus asks the next question of Philip. Look at verse 10. He says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? He's expecting a positive answer here. He expects Philip to say, You do believe. He expects that Philip does in fact believe that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. He says, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Jesus' promise is that as they abide in Christ, as they know Christ, and as they love Christ, as they walk as true disciples of Christ, they will indeed understand. They will indeed have the knowledge that we can all expect as we focus on the character and the person and the word of God. 
an expectation of rest, an expectation of knowledge. Third and finally this evening, an expectation of access in verses 12 through 14. We can expect rest. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, he will come again. We can expect knowledge that if we have seen Christ, we have seen the Father. So we can know the Father through the Son and the Son has been revealed to us. The Word of God reveals unto us the Son. In fact, the Son is said in John 1 to be the very Word of God incarnate. So we can know the Son. And ladies and gentlemen, if we can know the Son, we can know the Father. Third and finally, we have access. Look at verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, do, because I go unto my Father. Now it's important when we read this verse that we keep Jesus' promise in the context within which it resides. The question arises, the questions that have been asked both by Thomas and by Philip, they have arisen because Jesus is promising that his disciples will do greater works than his own as they place their belief on him. Now while the disciples would go on to do many miracles, as we look at the scriptures, we do not see them doing the greatness of miracles that Jesus Christ performed. But if we look in the context and we recognize that what Jesus Christ is talking about here is not his physical works, but his spiritual work. It's not what he has physically done on this earth, but what he is doing spiritually through his victory, through death, through his resurrection, by going to prepare a place for us, by being the way, the truth, and the life. Then we understand this promise within the context that it rests. And it is this. It is not so much a promise of physical power and efficacy as much as it is spiritual power and efficacy. These men, empowered by God in the years to come, would see a spiritual effectiveness that far surpassed the ministry of Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. They would be far more saved through the disciples of Jesus Christ in the coming years than would have than were saved through Jesus Christ's direct ministry in the two and a half years or so that he was ministering on this earth. Now how would this great power, this great spiritual effectiveness of the disciples come about? That's verses 13 and 14. He says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So where does this power come from? Where does this spiritual effectiveness come from? How is it that the works of the disciples will become greater than the works of their master, Jesus Christ? It will come through the power of Jesus Christ as they ask in his name to the Father. Their power, whether physical or spiritual, would not be sourced in themselves. Their effectiveness would only be realized as they aligned themselves with the person, work, and message of Jesus Christ. So, as we think about it, these disciples were not an end in and of themselves for spiritual power, but they were the conduit through which the power of God is performed. There's a tremendous amount of confusion regarding Jesus' promise that He will grant all things to those who would ask in His name. He says, If ye shall ask anything in My name, I will do it. 
Now, some of this confusion results from tradition. Other is the result of just plain heresy. At the end of your prayers, perhaps, at the end of my prayers oftentimes, at the end of prayers within the context of um, our gathering oftentimes, we will close our prayer saying, in Jesus' name, amen. I believe Troy finished his prayer saying that. Dee finished his prayer saying that. Andrea finished her prayer saying that. I finished my prayer saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the reason why we do that, in fact, is because of verses such as this one, where the scriptures tell us that if we would ask anything in his name, he will do it. But my question to you is this. Are we always, by default, praying in Jesus' name just because we invoke his name in a prayer? Let me ask the question again while you think about it. Are we always, by default, praying in Jesus' name just because we invoke his name in our prayer? In fact, we are not. That is not what Jesus Christ is saying here when he says, pray in my name. It does not mean that if we, if we say Jesus' name in our prayer, it's some sort of lucky rabbit's foot or magic eight ball that will shake it and we'll get a good answer as long as we say the name of Jesus while we're shaking it. It's not like that. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here. We know this from many of our studies before, but the idea of one's name in Scripture is far more than just the letters that comprise it. It encompasses everything that a person was. A person's name was his reputation, and that has carried over into our culture. If I were to say Troy has a good name in the community, Troy has a good name in the community, no one in this room is going to think that means that everyone loves his name, Troy. That's not what we think. When we say Troy has a good name in the community, what I mean by that is he has a good reputation. That when I say the name Troy, people think of good things. They think positive things. They think of respectability. They think of honor. That is the idea of what it means when Jesus Christ says, pray in my name. It is his person. It is his work. It is his message. It is his character. So to pray in Jesus' name is not to invoke the letters of his name or not to invoke his physical name in our prayers, but rather to approach God the Father, as we pray, in a manner that is aligned both in intent and in purpose with the person, the character, and the will of Jesus Christ. We come to God aligned with His Word. We come to God according to His Word. We come to God seeking His will. What does that mean for you and for I? It means that I can say Jesus' name in my prayer all I want, but if I am coming to the Father with a heart full of sin... I'm not praying in Jesus' name. I can end my prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, every time, but if I am coming to God asking for things to satisfy my own lust, then I am not praying in Jesus' name. James 4, verses 1 through 3 say this, From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask, he says, and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it 
upon your lusts. He says, you have not because you ask not. You say, well, I am asking. He says, you ask and receive not because you're asking for the wrong things. Because you are asking for things simply to consume them upon your lusts. Because you are asking for something that would be sinful to receive because you are lusting after something. You want it, and so you ask for it. That's not how we come to God. That is not praying in Christ's name. What does this mean? It means don't go to God asking for Him to give you a new car simply so you can impress your neighbors. It means don't go to God asking Him to give you a good grade on a test that you put no diligent effort into studying for. It means don't go to God asking Him to make you beautiful so that you can look better than everyone else and finally be happy. This is your lust. These are things that flow from a heart of discontentment, a heart of pride, a heart of selfishness, a heart of slothfulness, a heart of apathy, a heart of disobedience. God's not going to give you those things. That's not how God works. When those things are in your prayers, you are not praying in Jesus' name. Don't expect an affirmative answer because you are not coming to the Father in Jesus' name. Now, what am I not saying? I am not saying that you cannot pray unless you know God's will. In fact, one of the primary purposes of prayer is to find God's will, is to seek God's will. Oftentimes, our prayers are lifted up to God to express our desires, a request that we would ask God to make known to us some things. But as we come to God with our desires, we are coming to God not trying to heap our things, um, be them covetous or lustful things, onto ourselves. And if, if so, we're not praying properly. But we come to God seeking His will, not for our glory, but for God's glory. We are coming seeking God's will in order that we might know the way that God would be pleased for us to go. What am I not saying? I am also not saying that you must be afraid when you pray that you're not praying in Jesus' name. God delights in giving us what we ask for. He wants you to ask for things. I do not desire to instill in your heart some sort of irrational fear that I must know God's will or I must know that this is okay before I pray. Oftentimes, prayer is a process of conforming. We pray and we pray, and as we're not seeing our prayers answered, we're recognizing that maybe we're not praying the right thing. And so we seek the Word of God. We search out our hearts. We look for ulterior motives. We look for any lust. We, we seek God's perfect will, and as we are on our knees, we find it eventually. This is Jesus Christ saying, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. It's not that God ignores us the first time and the second time and the third time until finally He says, okay, I'll answer it now. It's not like that. It's that as I'm asking and I'm seeking and I'm diligent and I'm praying and I'm seeking and I'm asking and I'm knocking, each time I'm searching for God's will. I'm searching the Word of God for His will. I'm searching through diligent, uh, through friends that, that can give me advice, that can counsel me through godly advice for God's will. And God brings it together in His time and in His way as we ask, seek, and knock. Jesus Christ would say this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. 
Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And then he asks this, Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him. My children, I love my daughters. As they get older, they're going to begin asking daddy for things. It will be my delight to give them those desires. But you know, sometimes I'm going to withhold things from them. Not because I dislike them. Not in some sadistic game but because I want what's best for them. And what they're asking is not what's best for them. And perhaps my children will come up and make a request of me and I'll say, no, honey, that's not what's best for you. And so they'll think about it and they'll Say, well, if that's not what's best for me, then may I have this instead? Daddy, may I have a lollipop? Well, no, you've already had enough candy today. Well, then may I have an apple instead? Yes. Yes, you may. I'm fine with that. And as we are asking and seeking and knocking, when our will conforms to God's will, then he says, yes, you may have it. Maybe it's timing. The timing is off and you have to wait for the right timing. Maybe it's what you're asking for. Maybe the spirit in which you're asking it. Whatever it is, we're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. Now, what am I saying? You, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, have the confident expectation of access to God. But just because you have access doesn't mean you're using that access. I remember one summer way back when in Colorado, I had purchased a season pass to a theme park. Elitch Gardens was the name of the theme park. It was a Six Flags and it was the big one, Colorado, way downtown. And we were about an hour and 15 minutes or so outside of that area. And I had purchased a season pass. My sister had purchased one as well. I blame her for it. You know, she would say, I want to do this. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. And we, we put a lot of money into this season pass, you know, over $100 or whatever the case was. And the reality of this season pass was you had to use it three times to make it worth your money. If you go once, you paid more for the season pass than you used for a regular admission. If you went twice, you paid more for the season pass than regular admission. But on that third visit, the season pass would have paid for itself. If you've gone 10, 15, 20 times, well then, the more you go, the better deal it becomes. It's the same with a ski resort or whatever the case may be. Well, we bought this costly season pass. The only problem was that season we went... Two times. We only went twice the entire summer to this theme park. See, I had the season pass. I had access, unlimited access to the park. Any day, any night. I could have gotten there 10 minutes before closing, shown my pass, walked in, walked back out, and been done for the day because, hey, I had a season pass. But I didn't use it. I didn't use it. Take advantage of the pass. 
how often do we do the same thing with God? You know, we have the privilege of going directly to the throne of God. Direct access. At the end of our lives, what will we find when we look back? Will we have taken advantage of this access? Or do we continually waste this tremendous privilege that we have? This access to God is through Christ. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Is that purchase going to waste? I thank the Lord for how much this church prays. It's not a very popular thing to sit in a seat for 15, 20, sometimes 30 or 40 minutes on a Tuesday night and engage in prayer. It's hard work to pray. It's difficult to pray. It's not something that's going to get us large crowds of people that are excited about sitting in a chair while people pray for 30 minutes. But it's good. It's good that in each service we are coming to our God and praying in Jesus' name for the things that we need, for the things that we would desire, for the opportunity to praise Him as well. See, because it's such a privilege to have access to God. We looked at three expectations today. An expectation of rest an expectation of knowledge, and an expectation of access. You serve a God who has given you, by virtue of your salvation, if you are a born-again believer in this room, great expectations. And as we bring it back to where we began, we can trust Him to be faithful on His end. The question is, are we faithful on our end?